Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When I was growing up as a kid, I had a fanciful vision about marriage. To me, it was idyllic. Two people find each other and get to spend the rest of their lives together. You know, the happily ever after. It wasn't until my own parents got divorced that I saw that the reality of marriage isn't always so straightforward or easy. Our society has come a long way since then in how we view divorce. But no matter how much our language and attitudes have changed, divorce is still a difficult process for the people involved. Later this hour, we'll invite a few people who have gone through it and then turn to local lawyers for advice. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at ThisIsNashville and on Instagram at ThisIsNashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. I love Thursdays, you know. You know, it's always a good day when I get to join you in the studio. Oh, that's great. And Thursdays <laughs> is kind of technically the start of the weekend, if you think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get into it. Listeners were particularly active to, during Tuesday's episode, which was an explainer on Nashville's Metro Council and why it's so large at 40 representatives. It's really encouraging to see so many people tuned into what's happening in local government. And you know what? We received a lot of tweets during hmm. that show. Uh, like one from community organizer Jamel Campbell-Gooch. He had a nuanced view on the creation of the Metro Council back in the 60s. He tweeted us saying, quote, We have a large city council because in the early 60s, the political elite did not want the rise of a black mayor or community accountable elected officials. In order to cement systematic racism, they took surrounding majority white cities and turned Nashville into a metropolitan. The majority of Metro Council members play the same role as the original, squash any change coming from the people, allow for corporations to passively run the city, and continue and continual de degradation of black and working class communities, mm. end quote. You know, I've heard similar arguments out there. So, you know, we did this episode because of the Tennessee legislature is considering a bill that would shrink the size of Nashville's Metro Council. And a lot of listeners chimed in on this. And most were not pleased with the idea. Our former guest, Erica Ciccaroni, gave us a shout out on her council, gave a shout out on her council member, Colby Sledge, who represents District 17. She wrote, quote, I've been able to get in touch with him for his whole team, for his whole term, pardon me. And he was always replies and helps. I'd hate to lose this because of a smaller council, but also all CMs should be so committed, end quote. And I know we heard from others, right, Anna? Of course. On, twi on Twitter, um, Tariva called it a, quote, completely discriminatory and spiteful attempt by our state government to silence Nashville voters through limiting our representation. Listener LJ had a similar sentiment. He wrote in saying, quote, I reject the notion that somehow Nashville or any other Tennessee city is acting politically when addressing clear civic needs like transit, education, health, homelessness, First Amendment rights and judges. The list is long and and years piling on. We have a spiteful state tail wagging the dog of 
of its economic engines. Mm, in many ways, that kind of sounds like Jamel Campbell Gucci's comment. Mm-hmm. So we had another episode that got folks buzzing. It was last Friday's episode on urban wildlife. We asked listeners to write in about the animals they've spotted in their backyards. What did we hear? So we got a very interesting email from a listener named John. He wrote to us saying, quote, I have seen several mostly adorable skunks in my neighborhood in North mm-hmm. Nashville. Mm-hmm. My dog unfortunately met one this summer. Oh. One thing I learned is don't use water, which makes the smell worse and is harder to remove. Baking soda and hydrogen pyroxide did the trick for us. And you know what, John? I am going to keep your email in case of emergency because I have a very curious dog at home that wants to, you know, he wants to be <laughs> friends with all the wild critters in our neighborhood. And unfortunately, that includes skunks. I wonder if that recipe works on cats, though. Hmm. You know, let's hope. I don't have to find out. (laughs) Speaking of cats, after that episode, we heard from Laura Cook, the bird research coordinator at Warner Park and former show guest. She sent us an email saying, quote, outdoor cats are invasive, non-native species that cause significant harm to our native wildlife and birds, end quote. She also cited a figure from 3billionbirds.org that, quote, In less than a single lifetime, North America has lost more than one in four of its birds according to a report in the world's leading scientific journal, end quote. She also sent us links to the American Bird Conservancy that that the tap-neuter release method is not effective method to control the feral cat population. Anna, is this true? You know, that's what I wanted to know because we had a lot of conversations about the tap-neuter release method. And um, if you do a quick Google search, you'll actually find a dozen articles in favor of trap neuter release and another dozen against it. Mm -hmm. So after a little more digging, I found a meta-analysis from the University of Florida's Department of Wildlife, Ecology, and Conservation that was done in 2020. They found that in order for trap neuter release to effectively reduce the feral cat population, more than 70% of cats in a closed colony need to be neutered. And Mm. that takes quite a bit of resources. Um, And it also gets more complicated when you factor in that, you know, cats are like humans. They like to move around. But as always, the best advice for pet owners is to keep your cats indoor and, of course, to spay and neuter them. Okay. Anything else? I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Melody. So she went to our website to fill out our community engagement survey at thisisnashville.org. She suggested that we do an episode about birth and doulas. So now listeners can look forward to an episode on that topic next Tuesday. So listeners, if you you can let us know about what you'd like from the show or potential show topics like Melody um, anytime by filling out that survey. All right. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course. And our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram. And let's keep the comments coming. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll invite a panel of folks who made the hard decision to get divorced and learn how they found the help they needed. Are you going through a divorce? What's the process been like for you? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
chances are we all know someone who has been divorced. The fact is marriage isn't always forever, even if we hoped it would be. Things happen. Sometimes love fades, life happens, and partners face the difficult decision of ending this union. It's not an easy choice to make or a simple process to go through. On top of that, there's still stigma around it, even if our society has come a long way in how we view divorce. So what is it like to come to this decision and then walk through the process step by step? My next guests have all walked this path. Sarah Weigel, Cheryl Turan, and Jeremy Fry. Thank you all for joining us and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Cheryl, let's start with you. How did you know that divorce was right for you? If I'm being honest, I didn't know. Mm. Um, we struggled with it for quite a, a long time. We stayed separated, and every time we thought about moving forward, there would be something that stopped us. And it wasn't until I got to a point where I made the decision that he had to decide what he wanted to walk away with because our relationship was no longer um, a relationship. It definitely wasn't a marriage. Mm. How did your husband react when you approached him with that? Um, initially, he was hesitant, and um, we had, like I said, separated, and he wanted to come back and move into the house with me. However, nothing about him had changed. And so I no longer trusted him with me, and I wanted better for myself. So therefore, um, we ended up going ahead and getting the divorce, and it took about two years. Two years for that divorce. Now, Sarah, what about you? When did you get the feeling that something in your marriage was off? You know, I knew something was off when my ex-husband actually asked me for a divorce. So I was laughing to myself thinking about um, Cheryl's response that um, be, just because it, it was so apparent, there was no um, discussion leading up. There was just a, hey, I want a divorce. And then after that, there was a massive amount of communication, uh, mostly on my end, um, between us for about a year and a half um, leading up to actually filing. You were kind of blindsided by this, right? Oh, I really was and have done a lot of uh, work and therapy and, and talked to family and friends about that over the years. And I think that I really probably should have seen it coming, but originally it was not something that I wanted for my life or for that marriage. How difficult was it for you to really come to that realization um, and really adapting, adjusting, settling in with being blindsided by your ex-husband when he asked you for a divorce out of the blue? It was really hard. When he initially asked for the divorce, it was in words of anger. And I wanted to talk about that at a time when we would be able to communicate in a, a more neutral place. And then he actually took it back. So there was a lot of back and forth discussion of, well, do you want this or do you not want this? And that made me feel very lost in that relationship because I couldn't tell how he felt about me or what his goals were for for that connection. And eventually it came to the point where I felt like the things that then I asked for related to my broken trust were not going to be 
provided or respected and um, it was just going to get drawn out, drawn out, drawn out and things were going to remain incredibly difficult for me. Um, and that was a really dark time in a lot of ways. So by the time I I actually filed for the divorce, and by the time that I did that, I felt really joyful about it because at least I had an answer. At least I knew that I would not be going through this really difficult time any longer. And I have never had any regrets about that. But I think part of the reason why I've been able to be happy in um in leaving that situation was because it was so terrible during the liminal space between the, you know, maybe happy marriage and then the divorce. Mm. Now, Jeremy, I understand that you've been through divorce twice. That's correct. But let's start with your first experience. How did you know it was time for divorce? Uh, I think we probably both knew, uh, at our rehearsal dinner before, uh, you know, before we ever got married. Um, hmm. So I think I think it was pretty much, and not that there weren't any, you know, positive times or fun times that I look back on, but it was a pretty tumultuous relationship for the four years that we were married, you know, pretty much the whole time. I think we were both really stubborn and uh, just kind of stuck with it as long as possible. And then I think we both knew, you know, once once we really got there, I think, we kind of ran that relationship into the ground. Um, and I think we both just probably, you know, were facing sort of the stigmas of failure and the emotional aspect of it. But, you know, I think we were we were both pretty relieved once it happened, um, for sure, with the first one. So you learned a lot from that first experience. Uh, I did, yes. So did that help you when you found yourself <laughs> navigating another divorce years later? Uh, yes. The, the circumstances were very different, and that, that marriage – definitely started really happy I was I was you know crazy about my wife and I've thought everything was really really um uh really good and on sound footing and it was for several years but uh things just kind of deteriorated and there was some infidelity in there and so um as far as navigating the divorce itself yes absolutely you know I, I knew what to expect and I think I had a much better handle on the emotional side of it and um just the process in general you know, while it's not what it once was, there's still this stigma around divorce. Sarah, was that a factor for you as you were starting down this path? It was. It was probably one of the largest obstacles. And it's something that I've spoken about and written about really publicly in the over seven years since I um, went through my divorce. For me, what I noticed and what I continue to observe is that although this program is something that's, I think, really going to help people um, for the thing that I want to advocate for, which is that I think that so many people talk about divorce in either a very flip way, like, oh, it's fine, you'll just like get divorced, or, you know, you'll just get married um, three more times, it'll be okay. And I've certainly made those jokes as well, although I feel a little entitled. Um, <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I think talking about divorce is often really taboo for many, many people and especially different communities. And I don't think that really serves married people very well or the greater community. I think that not talking about what we want a marriage to look like and also are there grounds for that unraveling and what would they be and how would we how would we do that? I really came from a background where even to mention the D word was very taboo, 
really not allowed. It was assumed that, of course, this would never happen to you. Mm. But the reality is that um, there are high statistics of divorce in this country, looking at very many different types of communities and populations. And it's going to happen whether we acknowledge that it happens or not. So I do think a healthier perspective would be if couples, as they are going through either premarital discussions or counseling, I wish that even if they have a value set that tells them like this partnership is for life, because I think most people feel that way, but I do wish that more people would discuss, okay, we know it's for life, but on the off chance that it's maybe not, Hmm. how would we deal with this? Because I think that's a way to respect your partner and yourself instead of operating out of a place of fear, like, well, if I even breathe life into this idea, this is a boogeyman that's going to come get me mm-hmm. or something like that. I hear you. And I think that was, that was, had been my perspective. Now, Cheryl, did you ever feel a sense of shame because you were getting a divorce? Absolutely. From who? Um, family, friends, church, um, this community that had saw this marriage and thought it was ideal for us and to see the breakdown, it was it was difficult. It was difficult in that um, every time you walk into a room, people are assuming that you're looking for something. Mm. And when I say that something as a single woman or a woman going through divorce, they think you're looking for your next marriage. Okay. And definitely wasn't looking for that. But then people, you know, the stigma of, well, what did you do? Mm. And so you had to deal with all of that and and try to guard your heart and protect yourself and, and your family. How did you protect yourself? Um, by stepping away from negative people, um, centering myself around people that were going to be supportive but give me a reality check. Also getting closer to God and understanding what he wanted for my life and then having me to invest in me, that self-care piece, and and finding where it was okay. And the forgiveness piece was tremendous for me because once I said, I forgive you, then I was able to release it, and I got my power back so that I could move forward Mm. and make a difference in not only my life but other people's lives. And I stepped back from a lot of work that I was doing in the church. Um, But then I was like, I have worth. And because I do, then I'm not going to let this thing be the thing that separates me from investing in other people and having them to understand, as Sarah said, having that conversation. Divorce is real, and it happens. It's not the end of the world, and there is life after divorce. Now, Jeremy, how about you? Did you get that sense of shame? You talked about a little bit about the stigma. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the shame in in for me, it was probably more sort of embarrassment or admitting failure or admitting that it didn't work out. You know, um, I'm very lucky in that I didn't get any of that from my family or friends. They were completely supportive and probably relieved when, you know, that decision was actually made. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it was just more for me having that feeling myself, you know, like I'm pretty stubborn, like I said, and I don't like to 
fail at things or have have that sense of failure. So, you know, I think there's just a natural gamut of emotions that you run through, embarrassment and just feeling like maybe you failed the the marriage itself as an institution and the other, per, you know, your other um, your other partner. And so um, but that was more internal than it was from from others around me. Luckily, I mean, I had a great support group of family and friends that were that were great both times. How did you eventually overcome your internal struggles with it? Uh, I think both of those divorces really, especially the second one, allowed me to have a better sense of who I was and just be really honest about what I wanted and to sort of be selfish in in, in a healthy way where I wasn't going to settle and it really made me assess what I wanted in a in in a significant other and a partner going forward um and uh, quite honestly it's just you know it's made me my my truest self going through those experiences if you're just tuning in this is Nashville and I'm your host Khalil Colona. we're talking this hour about divorce my guests have all been through it themselves so join the conversation by tweeting us at this is Nashville so Sarah you were going through your divorce were you able to find the support that you needed? That's a great question, Khalil. And it's something that um, I'm really passionate about actually is divorce support. And I had a unique experience in that I was pretty young when I got divorced. I was 29 and I was not a parent. And going through the divorce, I found that I could not find the community that I needed and the support that I needed. I really wanted to find people that, like me, were on the younger side of things and also were not parents so that I could talk with them about what I was dealing with and how my identity was being challenged and reshaped because of that experience. But what I found was that most of the resources, whether that was online or in-person communities um, or books, were really, or groups, were really based on the idea that the majority of people getting divorced are uh, have children, mm. um, and often as well, that they're quite a bit older. And I don't think that that has, in terms of what the mental health and the community offerings are, ha did not change a lot um, in the last seven years. So I decided I would change it myself. And so I did start a group called Nashville Young Divorcees about, I think it was five years ago. And really I was looking for, you know, two things. One was again, I did not have community. I had no one to show. I felt like I had no one to show me the way mm -hmm. um, and no one to reassure me that me specifically, I was going to be okay on the other side, even though I was also at the same time, as I mentioned before, excited about the opportunity to reshape my life there were still shame and, and challenges associated with that. So I started this group because I wanted to find other people and also because I thought I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. I was so alone. Um, so tell me, and I wanted, tell me this, mm -hmm. what does Nashville young divorcees offer people who are going through a divorce? Yeah. So what the group did was we, we just met and had community and mm. we were able to meet and reassure others that the different things you're going through are normal. It's okay to feel this way. And it's okay to also acknowledge that you've been disenfranchised from your pain a little bit by some of the more mainstream resources for 
this um, trauma that you're going through because so many were more focused on the dissolution of a family that included children and showing people that it was okay to um, still grieve and still mourn even if they didn't have that as part of their life because I, I would feel like I was being pushed into sort of this corner of of well it's been so much easier for you mm. and I think divorce is hard for everyone that goes through it whether they have children or not so that was something that I think was a great service to our community and something that I found support and friendship in mm -hmm. as well now Cheryl you have a similar story you were inspired to become a divorce care facilitator what led you down that path it was a journey for sure so what led me to that is that I originally didn't believe that the divorce had impacted me significantly. It was over. It was done. I was excited. You know, I'm free. Um, all of that. And I had a friend who was a facilitator um, in a divorce care. And every now and then when we would come in contact with one another, she would just drop that nugget and say, hey, I go to this divorce care class. You can join us. Mm. And I'm like, okay. And I just didn't really process it as it was something that was going to help and change my life. And so one day, out of the clear blue, I just walk into the room. I go to the church, and I walk into the room, and I'm sitting in divorce care. So as we proceed through the different lessons and the interaction and understanding it's a safe place and you're not alone, you're not the first person that this ever happened to, you have similar experiences, I realized that this was something that I really needed. And so as you went through what happened to you, to, through the anger, the disappointment, all of that, and then seeing that there were brighter days, it really helped me to say, hey, I need to go through it. So I went through it a second cycle. And as going through it a second cycle, it actually opened me up to be able to receive and to respect and understand a different perspective. And having males in the class really helped me to see the male perspective. Mm. Because, you know, oftentimes you don't think that they feel the way that you do, but the divorce is painful and it impacts people differently, but it is a tearing from a union that was put together that you thought was going to last forever, and then you're no longer that union, and you have to deal with it. So over time, I just started, you know, talking to people, checking in on them, and when I was approached to be a facilitator, it was no hesitation about doing so, and it has changed my life. It's probably made me even a better person, more conscientious of you know, the mental health that people deal with. Um, and so I'm always very watchful. Mm. And when we finish our class, sometimes I will just personally call a person like, hey, I'm just checking on you. So it led me to a place that has tremendously changed my life for the good mm. and investing in other people. And I'm so grateful. Now, Jeremy, you mentioned that after your divorces, you had tremendous support from your family and friends. Yes. Did you seek a support group yourself? No, I really didn't. Um, and when I went through my first divorce, uh, I was 30, and I really only had one other friend who had a similar experience. Um, uh, but again, I kind of got into my next relationship, and everything was really positive. So when I had my second divorce, I was 39, and at that time, I I was almost, uh, again, my, my chosen family, my friends are, are completely awesome. My, my family, we are really, really close. Um, they were all supportive, but I found myself actually – 
being someone that a few of my friends who actually were going through divorces at the time could mm. could kind of just talk through and I kind of walk them through the process. And that actually really helped me kind of process things as well. Um, so I, I never, I didn't have really therapy or anything like that. Um, but I, I feel like my, my friends were so open about talking through everything and being there for me. Um, and it was, it was kind of neat to, to be able to be a kind of voice of perspective for some of my friends that were going through it as well. We talked about you know, the stigma, I'm going to get back to that real sure. quick and touch on it. You know, they say the truth is divorce is not really a failure, like many people feel. How do you see it, Jeremy? I, you know, especially going into my second marriage, I was very clear. I was like, look, if having gone through divorce once and just kind of seeing what it does to you, you know, I, I've always been of the mindset and, and was very clear. If somebody doesn't want to be with me, you know, I don't want to be in a relationship where I'm not wanted or I don't, you know, I don't want to be with that person. I think that's just about honesty at that point, as tough as that is. Um, so, you know, from a stigma standpoint and and just going through it, like it, it it's tough. But I think honesty and, and um, you know, just being open help, helps, you know, um, make maybe that end a little bit more um, – uh, agreeable, you mm -hmm. know, and, and respectful. Yeah. I mean, you know, even this, the concept of sending condolences to someone going through a divorce isn't always appropriate, right? Some people want congratulations. Do any of you feel that way, Cheryl? Absolutely not. So even though we had this divorce, I don't regret the relationship. I didn't regret the marriage nor the divorce. And so I didn't want someone to congratulate me for something not working out. Mm. It was... For me, it was about moving forward and finding my life after divorce. And so basically, I had to invest in me. And investing in me got me closer to where I want to be. And I'm still a work in progress and continuing to, to try to be better. But no, didn't want a congratulations because um, it was still painful. Mm. Now, Sarah, do you see, I'd like to, your, your reaction to that. Like, do you want, do you think congratulations is appropriate? or condolences and also do you think that divorce is failure i don't think it's failure but i think that a lot of people struggle with those feelings when they go through divorce and that you know depends on the person but i think that um i had grown up with ideas about it being a failure and so for me it felt like one but i don't actively believe that it is one and I had to process through that and in terms of whether or not you should give condolences or congratulations again I think I would really just push for something a little bit more neutral I would say that I have run the gamut in my personal feelings about whether or not I regretted my marriage I think that for a while I felt that I did not regret marrying my first husband but in recent years, I have come around to feeling like, yeah, I really wish I had never gotten married. And so I think that if anyone, I, I did receive many condolences. Um, I think if anyone was really kind of laying on thick condolences or congrats, I think it makes it a little harder for the individual to process on their own mm -hmm. how they feel about what they've gone through. Because whether you want it or not, um, you know, all these studies do say that 
divorce is one of the most stressful things you can go through in your life. So I think that people just maybe being a little more neutrally focused on that experience and letting the individual just share how they feel, which may not be consistent. Um, healing is is nonlinear. Well, tell me this. What Quickly, what advice do you have for people who are going through a divorce right now? Yeah. One piece of advice I can give is to certainly make sure that you're pursuing your passions and putting that focus somewhere. Like for me, it's with Writer Fest Nashville or the library where I'm a fundraiser. And that's found helped me to find community as well, working with people and be developing deep relationships with people that share values with me. So I think some community is the answer and that might be specific to your mental or emotional experience. But beyond that, finding the communities that you really care about and then can stay connected to even after maybe some of the divorce trauma has been, you know, better moved through because mm -hmm. um, those people become people that you depend on. Cheryl? So when I think about um, what Sarah said about finding that community, finding your passion, um, finding the things that you can do and stop focusing on you when it comes to what happened to you. Mm. Take that situation and, 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 and cultivate it to a point where you find something new. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and when you find that thing new, you're able to be open. I mean, I laugh a lot now. Um, just simple things I laugh about. I found peace in my life. I found the joy. I found contentment. I'm okay with not being married. Mm -hmm. I don't walk around saying I'm happily divorced. And I certainly don't go around, you know, saying I'm so sorry that it happened because I'm more than just a divorce. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so much more and I have so much more to offer. And I invest in the lives of so many different people in so many different demographics as well as communities. And so it just gave me an opportunity to look past me and take my emotions out of it and figure out how can I help somebody else who is dealing with this situation. Jeremy, what's your advice? You know, I think if you're going through a divorce, I think just having some grace and respect for the uh, for your spouse. You know, at this point, y'all have both agreed that the relationship's done and and finished. And I think on on the backside of it, you don't want to look back with regret about you know it, you know manifesting resentment at that point and um, being mean or or callous. You know, the emotions you're going through, your your spouse is going through as well. So, and it's tough, but you know, it's done at that point. It's, it's, you, you don't want to look back and, and have regret about how you acted towards the end. I think that's the time to really be respectful and have some, have some compassion. That is Jeremy Fry. He was joined by Sarah Weigel, founder of Nashville Young Divorcees and divorce care facilitator, Cheryl Turan. I want to thank you all for coming to the show and thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thanks for having us. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll invite a few family lawyers into the conversation and round up advice on how to navigate through the process of divorce. Tweet us your questions about divorce for our experts at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this 
is Nashville. The holidays can be a sobering time for a couple whose marriage is in trouble. Couple that with New Year's resolutions, it's no surprise that divorce lawyers see a spike in inquiries in January. Now, as we've been hearing, when someone is thinking about initiating a divorce, they have a lot to think about. There may be children and a custody to consider, housing to work out, and then there's always the combined finances to sort through. Look, even if you have the resources to hire a top divorce lawyer, these are the things that can make take time and add stress to an already difficult process. My next guests have the expertise to offer practical advice on how to navigate the legal, legal system when you're seeking a divorce. Stella Malinek is a family lawyer at Rogers, Shea, and Spanos, and Rebecca Toka is the lead family law attorney at Legal Aid Society of Middle Tennessee and the Cumberlands. I want to thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So let's start at the beginning. Rebecca, what's the first step someone should take after they've decided the time is right for a divorce? I think the first step is to consult consult with an attorney because even if you're not going to hire that attorney, there are there's some advice that you can get on the front end of what you should do and what you should prepare for before anyone files for divorce. So I think definitely seeking a consultation is the first step. Stella, what should be top of mind as, as couples embark on this journey? On getting a divorce? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a big thing that you need to think about is making sure you're ready to file before you file. It can be really expensive if in the middle of your case you start changing your mind and we need to file things to put your case on pause. So it's you can come meet with us before you're ready to get the information, but when you want to actually pull the trigger and do the paperwork, you know, have your mind made up. What about, okay, so what about what not to do? Like what cautionary tips are out there that people should avoid? Uh, be very careful about what you post on social media. Very careful, especially if it involves your minor children. I also always tell people in initial consults, if you think your spouse has any way of knowing your passwords, change your passwords. Because if I'm talking to you in emails, they need to not be reading that. Mm. Rebecca? I think, I think that's great advice. And I think that another thing maybe not to do is like take a pause on dating. I know that you really shouldn't – that seems – kind of like practical advice, but it's also legal advice because the judges in this area do not, especially if you have children, want to hear that you are seeing someone else romantically when your divorce is pending. Mm. And they will make orders about it saying that you can't be, you know, have your children around. Um, They'll call it a paramour order where they'll tell you you can't have that person around around your children. And it can it can be a detriment in your divorce case. You know, there's many different reasons why people decide to get divorced. In some cases, it's domestic abuse. And Rebecca, you work closely with people who are experiencing domestic violence. What considerations do you make as an attorney to help people through this process? If there's domestic violence in the relationship, that those are the kinds of cases we take at the Legal Aid Society in Middle Tennessee and the Cumberlands. Um, and so we work with that every day. The most important thing to do if you're considering leaving that relationship is to do some safety planning with someone who can help you, a victim advocate um, who can walk you through having a safety plan because usually when you are when you decide to leave, that's the most dangerous time in mm-hmm. those relationships. So those are the, the safety considerations that your clients face. What do you do to ensure your client's safety? So in addition to that, if, if there is a domestic violence relationship, 
and if it's appropriate, maybe filing for an order of protection before you file for divorce, before you get to that point, might be helpful because that order of protection, if that person's been assaulting you or threatening you or stalking you, um, you can file for an order of protection in Tennessee and you'll have a hearing within 15 days. Um, but the order of protection could be granted immediately, uh, the ex parte mm. order of protection. And then you have a hearing within 15 days that can grant you an order of protection for up to one year. That will order that your spouse who is abusing you has to stay completely away from you. They can't contact you and they have to. And, and that can be a great benefit to someone who is looking at divorcing an abusive spouse. You know, so Stella, your advice was make sure you know you want a divorce before you start to process so once you start, what are some of the tension points you see? Oh, it, you know, that can vary wildly from case to case. Um, but, you know, typically everybody has something in their case that's really important to them. So I always ask my clients, what is the thing that you're most worried about? What is the issue that matters most to you? And a lot of times it's children. Mm-hmm. You know, they are, I don't care about the money. I, I want to make sure my kids are okay. And then I have to ask them, what does that mean to you? What does that look like? And, and everybody has a different answer. So, I mean, yes, custody and parenting time with minor children can be a point. Sometimes it's financial. You know, you may find out that based on their situation, we're in the middle of figuring out, can we afford to even live where we are? You know, with housing prices being the way they are in Nashville, I've got people who are divorced and still stuck in the same house because they can't get their house to sell or they can't Mm. find a place where they're currently living, where their kids go to school that both of them can afford now that we have two households. Mm. Now, so what advice do you have to people so they can keep the peace throughout this process as much as they can? So I think the big thing to do is actually follow the court's orders and if somebody isn't, enforce them. You know, a lot of people think I'm playing nice if I do what the other person, you know, I do what they want me to do and I, you know, give in to the things that they want. But if somebody's, you know, harassing you and not doing what they're supposed to be doing, moving money around and things, if you'll actually go to court, our judges will make them behave and that can make that behavior stop. If you just let them continuously not follow the court's orders, you're going to have a really messy divorce where you're in this cycle of just over and over again having issues. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about divorce and how to navigate the legal system with family lawyers Stella Malinek and Rebecca Toka. Now, Rebecca, what if somebody can't afford an attorney? What other options are available to them? So a lot of people cannot afford a divorce attorney because mm-hmm. it can be very expensive. But some of the options out there, of course, Legal Aid Society can help some of the population that meets our qualifications, but the need is much greater than what we can fully represent in court. So some of the options, if you are looking to get divorced but can't afford an attorney, are there are self-represented forms available on the Tennessee Office of the Courts websites that some, so I think some litigants can, can use to try to initiate their divorce. If it's an agreed-upon divorce where both, both parties can agree on all the terms of their divorce, they can use those forms to, to complete their divorce. I think, though, for some, it's not going to work that way because if you have anything you're fighting about, if you're fighting about a house or the, or the schedule with the children or retirement accounts, you're going to need the assistance of an attorney. So I think the other options there are to maybe seek out mediation, to try to hire a mediator to help the two parties come to 
a marital dissolution agreement without the litigation and without having to pay for attorneys. Can you briefly explain how mediation works in terms of, you know, divorce? Yes. So a mediator is usually going to be an attorney who is specially trained to handle mediations. And they're going to work with both parties um, to determine what are the issues in this divorce and can I help these two parties come to an agreement on these issues. And then they can, if they can come to an agreement, that mediator could help them draft the divorce documents that need to be filed with the court to complete their divorce. And the mediator is not a judge, but they're a neutral third party who can tell each side, this is what I think you'll get if you were to fight this out in court. So maybe you can compromise a little bit here and you can compromise a little bit here and we can get you an agreement. And if you're able to complete your divorce that way, you'll have you'll save so much because mm-hmm. you're, you don't need an attorney to go into mediation. While it might be helpful to consult with one to make sure you understand what you're agreeing to, you don't necessarily need to hire an attorney for the for the whole process. Now, Stella, you were talking about how when people appear in front of a judge, they're on their best behavior or quickly will be after, you know, visiting the judge. When they, when you, if you have a divorce proceeding that gets in front of a judge, what considerations should people have in mind? So if your case is at a motion hearing or if you're actually at the trial, I mean, one of the things I always tell my clients is that just because you're not talking doesn't mean that the judge can't see you. Mm. They're looking at you when you're at the table. They see how you're dressed. They see how you're behaving in the back of the courtroom. They can tell if you're paying attention and you're involved and engaged or if you are acting like you don't care about the proceedings. And the other thing I always tell people is when in doubt, tell the truth, especially tell the truth to me because no one's going to find out about our conversations. If you tell me in advance this is going on in my case, you know, I have a drinking issue. I can help get you the resources that you need. I can help prepare the judge to hear that, and it's not going to be a surprise to him. If you wait and don't say that to me and we're in the middle of a hearing and that comes out, I can't help you at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so really t- be candid with your lawyer when you meet with them. Um, sometimes I ask people, what's the worst thing your spouse is going to say about you? Because it can be really helpful to get that information that they may not want to volunteer. Does it matter who the judge is? You know, we have two really good, dedicated judges here in Davidson County who only hear family law matters in our chancery courts. And we also have family law cases for non-married people that are heard in juvenile court. Um, I think that, you know, as long as you're you know prepared when you come to court and are making a good effort, our judges try to apply the law you know, across the board as best they can and be fair. Now, what specific issues arise for LGBTQ couples seeking a divorce? Rebecca? I haven't seen any any particular issues other than sometimes with children. And I'm not an expert in that area, but sometimes depending on how um, a LGBTQ community partners had their children, there can sometimes mm. be some litigation when there's a disagreement about the parenting plan and and. Who's you know who might be the biological parent? Who might be the adoptive parent? Those things can kind of become an issue. Stella. So um, Tennessee is very far behind some other states in doing laws for assisted reproductive technology. You need to be aware that unless you're going through a um, sperm bank and getting genetic material that way, if you're using a friend, for example, that that person, until their rights are terminated, has parental rights. If the day your child is born, they change their mind, 
they can be sued and asked for child support if you change your mind. And if they change their mind, they can have parental rights, have parenting time and everything else. And that's very difficult for people. So unfortunately, if you're LGBT and you're forming a family, it can be a very expensive process, but you absolutely need to consult an attorney. Yeah, how about the general, well, I have a question about the general custody of children and what people should keep in mind, but we only have a couple minutes left and I know that could be an incredibly long answer. Can either one of you hook us up succinctly? Yeah, parenting time in Davidson County, at least, is not a presumed 50-50 even split. The, mm. the courts really try to look at the individual facts of your family and make the best decision they can for your children. It's not just this is what we think in all cases applied across the board. All right. So, Rebecca, what's your number one piece of advice for people considering going through this process right now? I would say consult with an attorney just to know your options before you start any process in court um, or before you tell your partner what you want to do. Maybe just have a consultation so that you have an idea of what you're getting yourself into. Stella. Uh, I would say, um, I mean, I'd echo consult with an attorney. I would say if you're not sure who to hire when you get in that consult, make sure you ask their attorney about what their philosophy is, what they see their role in your case being, and make sure that you're on the same page about that. And always tell the truth to your attorney. Absolutely. Yes. Definitely. Rebecca Toka is the lead family law attorney at Legal Aid Society of Middle Tennessee and the Cumberlands. She was joined by Stella Malinek, family lawyer at Rogers, Shea, and Spanos. I want to thank you both so much for being with us today, and thank you for giving us this important information. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, from people ending relationships to folks looking to start one. What is the dating scene really like? Is it as maddening as folks have will have you believe? Yes, this is Nashville. We cover everything. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Reva Buckley. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.